Greetings and salutations. Welcome to the History of Elaskia one-on-one sessions. I'm Junior Francis. This series celebrates the Skia rocksteady and reggae vintage scenes in Southern California and beyond through insightful conversations with legends and modern day players, including those behind the scene. And interestingly enough, this is our 32nd one-on-one uh, -on -one sessions and the 17th on this new platform, YouTube and podcast platform that we have been trying. And it's been working exceptionally well. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting us over the years. I think this is our second anniversary. Today we welcome uh, Courtney Miners, a longtime friend of mine and our friend of our producer, Eric Kohler, as well. He was the owner of Culture Beat Records and a promoter with Monkey Boot Productions. Courtney now keeps busy, extremely busy in Jamaica uh, by running several fascinating businesses. Welcome, Courtney Miners. How are you, sir? Uh, pretty good. Thank you, Junior, for, for such an esteemed introduction. <laughs> no, everything is factual. Yes, well, it is. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and we haven't even touched on much of uh, anything yet. We just scratched the surface. <laughs> That's right. Yes, sir. So let's start by talking about um, what you've been doing since you went back to Jamaica, uh, I think approximately somewhere in the early 2000. Right? Yeah, 2001 to be exact. Uh -huh, 2001. Um, so uh, from uh, what you've told me before, you started doing distribution in Jamaica, working at Ernie B Record. They were based out here in Los Angeles. Then you started your adventure tour and you moved on to Kingsworth Bed and Breakfast. Uh, what else? Uh, you wear so many hats and doing so many things. That's yeah. not typical of some Jamaicans. Well, actually, when I first came back to Jamaica in 2001, mm -hmm. I, I became a, a, a missionary. So I decided that I, after all these years, I would decide to give back to the world, if you may. Mm -hmm. And I was a volunteer at a mission for about four years, helping uh, marginalized kids in Kingston. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, I was um, teaching a homework class. So uh, this mission um, uh, catered for, uh, you know, marginalized kids. And um, yeah, it was quite an experience. I, um, I learned a lot from that experience and probably gained a whole lot uh, from it. Then uh, in, in my spare time, I was doing um, record uh, distribution. Well, I was basically um, buying and selling records because uh, this was something that I always loved doing, you know, uh, collecting vinyls and, and just looking at vinyls and, um, you know, and of course, uh, selling them. So I went around Kingston and bought and sold records um, during my spare time. And like you said, I was... Um, I was a buyer for Ernie B Records when, um, you know, in their uh, big times when they were when they were um, about. Yeah, but uh, that's basically what I was doing. Um, so I dealt particularly with uh, what was called hard accounts. That actually, I think Ernie uh, gave gave the term. But basically, what it means is that. Um, 
some records were not in circulation. So my job, and I, I took it very, um, very seriously, was to find the producers, um, remake the stampers, and of course, take them to the press and, you know, make them available um, for sale, particularly overseas. Um, you name it, um, with the exception of uh, Coxon, I did, uh, I worked extensively with Joe Gibbs and, um, and uh, Stryker and... Bonnie um, Lee for the record, right? Thompson Sound. Um, Linval. Uh, gosh, there's so many of them that I had to, you know, find uh, these producers. And, you know, some of them probably only had two or three titles that were prominent, mm -hmm. but nevertheless very important. Uh, and, you know, people who collected records were, um, were looking for the titles. So we made them available as repress on, on uh, Ernie B. And that was quite an exciting um venture to say the least i can imagine yeah i was very um eager every day i get up man it's like i have to go find some you know and a lot of them were pretty easy to find because they hang out with that tough gong records on um on marcus garvey drive so when you go down there you know three or four guys once they know you buy records they come up to you and say i mean man uh, you know me produce this and yeah, produce. And yeah. You know, I was listening to something the other day and a, a guy was talking about... Um, something what, what podcast or uh, something what? What do you mean? No, just just on the radio. It was on Jamaica. Oh. And they were talking about how, how many artists and producers are in Jamaica that you could find so many, you know, especially if you, um, if you hang around the radio station or something like that. You know, as you pull up, there's three or four guys coming to you. Yeah, man, I'm me, I'm me, so and so, you know, I'm me sing this, you know, or I'm me do this, and or no, why you check out this, you know, bad, bad tune, man, a tune. Back what then or right now? Yeah, right now. Right you now. Know, yeah. Because every, I mean, a lot of people in Jamaica have studios in their home. room, or yeah. their home whatever they can just pop open their computer and they have a studio and then can record and and whatnot so you know that that you know help the the populate the whole um industry because you mm -hmm. have so many producers now and you have so many entertainers i think the guy says something like like three out of five um man on the corner is either an artist or a producer. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're looking for um, artists, <laughs> you'll you find a bag of them in Jamaica. They're all over the place. Mm -hmm. Which is a good thing because people are expressing their art. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, not every one of them become a, a, a Shaggy or a Sean Paul. And some of them you might never heard of, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's basically what I've been doing. Right. So interesting enough. So, but let, let's take you back to um, your youthful days in Jamaica. Where exactly you grew up? Because uh, I know you're not, you weren't born under the clock. No, 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 <laughs> certainly not. And, um, and, and, and probably good that I didn't. But I was born in a small district called Floyd's Lodge in Westmoreland. And 
the closest major town to it would be Seaford Town. And for some of you who might know Jamaican history, Seaford Town is nicknamed German Town. And that's where the British uh, settled the Germans in 1837. It's, it's gone completely now. Uh, hey. And get, get um, you know, these Germans and bring them to Seaford Town and settle them there. Well, I am not German. My, my mother is a black Jamaican woman mm -hmm. and my father is said to be a white uh, Englishman. I guess you can call me Bob Marley. Yes, a slightly younger version of Bob Marley. <laughs> right, because I never knew my father as well, so mm -hmm. I never met him. Yeah, so I, I grew up in um, this small district, uh, probably at the time, uh, maybe 20 people lived in the district. Very small uh, rural uh, setting uh, in the mountains, of course, of the Cornwall Mountains in Jamaica. And um, yeah, you know, just growing up there as a, as a child was quite an experience. Um, I, I guess you're probably going to ask me what is my first exposure to to um, to reggae. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so my my uncle now that we lived with my mother's brother uh, went on farm work, mm -hmm. and um, to this day, so you're right uh, for for the benefit of our international viewers. Going on farm work it means he uh, left Jamaica um, on contract to work in the United States. Yes. And it's like usually the East Coast and Florida, Florida, East Coast, Florida, and sometimes California and Connecticut. Yes, or pick apples or something like that. Chop sugar cane and right. Yeah. So when he came back, he bought back a, um, what we call a changer. It's basically a rec uh, record. Uh, yeah, a record player. Mm. And um, in the, in the district that I, I was born, we had no electricity, uh, no running water. All of the things that people take for granted here, I mean, nowadays, we had none of it. So when my uncle bought back that record uh, player, it was like, it was like the biggest thing. In know? the district or in your house. Yeah. We didn't have TV and all that kind of stuff. So a record player was very, very important. And I remember my favorite song I used to play on the record player was uh, the Slickters, uh, Johnny Too Bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the label distinctly with the, with the um, Panther on it and the yellow label. And yeah. I just used to love playing that song. So we're talking about now late 60s. Yeah, man, that was the late 60s. Yeah. That was probably about, um, about 68, 69. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, yeah. at the time we, were still, we were still spending um, pounds. Uh, yeah, pounds, shilling, and pence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I remember they used to give you like a shilling if you got that much, or you get a truffance and you take it to the shop and they give you change. You could buy flour and sugar 
and and the, the shopkeeper would give you a change. Yeah, so I love playing that song, and um, and of course he bought more records and so on, and you know. I was I was like the DJ for the house, you know. So because all of the rest of the kids them were smaller than I I I was, I was the oldest um, child there, only a couple of years older than the rest of my um, siblings, my brother and um, and my two cousins, which was my uncle's uh, children. Mm -hmm. So I was the DJ. So you know, I would say uncle, by default I, you became the DJ, being the oldest. Yeah, man. So I would say, uncle, can I play the the turntable? I didn't say, yeah, man, you can play it, man. And but we didn't play it all the time because it operated on battery. Yes. Operated on battery. And um, we'll ask Courtney there momentarily. Courtney Minor is uh, talking to us from Kingsworth. Yeah. yeah so uh, I there for a second. Mm -hmm. Say that again. I will last you for a second. <laughs> oh boy, start again. Yeah, but but when we, since since you are now, uh, we may as well continue. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So um, so you would ask Uncle if you could play the turntable when you think he's in a good mood. <laughs> and you can play it. So you know you'll pop out song like um, the Slickers, Johnny Too Good, uh, Johnny Too Bad, um, Eric Donaldson, Cherry O Baby, all of them songs we had them. Um, you know those were songs that you would buy, songs that were popular. You know, so yeah, that that was my first introduction to to vinyl, really. Mm -hmm. And music period, right? Yeah, and music period because uh, we so didn't you mean have the entire and Rocksteady era. Yes, I basically missed it because um, we had no, living in those uh, hills, we had no, like I said, no electricity, no, t no TV, nothing, no radio. You know, we just were ordinary people. We, we, these were things that we never had and we didn't miss them. It's not like we knew that they existed <laughs> and you're like, oh, would I like to have a radio? Or whatever you're just living your life you know so what so what happened when you when you um started hearing yeah and rock steady when that new world opened up to you your reaction okay, that, that new world opened up to me in about 1974. uh it could have been 72 between 72 and 74 when my mother moved me from uh, from my uncle to board in Kingston. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when I came to Kingston, they used to say, when you're in the country, they say, when you go to town, you can't see moon pan tick. That means it's light, electricity. <laughs> yeah, that means the, the light on Perfect the light. <laughs> of course, I didn't, I, I was already free to that. So I didn't think there was moon on the stick. So anyway, <laughs> when I came to Kingston, all of this opened up tv the home that i was in had a tv of course tv signed on at a certain time during the day and it signed off mm -hmm. at a certain time at night but you had radio which mm -hmm. was you know very important and you could listen to radio you know my one of my favorite um 
radio personality was um, Don Toppin. So I used to like his voice. And then later on, I think it was uh, Mikey Dredd, Dredd at the Control. Mm -hmm. He had a, um, a program as well. And um, yeah, so I could hear the, the music now. And listening to the music, I started to get an interest in actually owning my own vinyls. And what made that even more so was when I got transferred from my the first Catholic school that I was attending, St. Benedict, to St. Annie's in Hannatown. That's just right behind Orange Street, behind the, the public hospital. So imagine now, the bus lets me off at uh, North Parade, right in front of Randy's, Joe Gibbs, and I forgot who else. But I used to go there every evening before I get back on the bus, even if I couldn't buy any records. Yes. I would listen to records and I would say, boy, I won't buy that one. And sometimes I write it down, <clears throat> you know, and say, well, when I get money, I'm going to buy this record or buy that record. And that's how I started buying uh, vinyls was that Joe Gibbs and Randy's that mm -hmm. was my first. Um, I never, I didn't venture up Orange Street or any of the other streets because conveniently um, Joe Gibbs and Randy's were right in front of the bus station right. that I took, you know, mm. that I would get on. Yeah, and in those days you had to, you had to get home on time. You couldn't spend because you were living in a guardian home. I so you, Yeah, you can't stay out too long because the guardian would think or assume that something happened to you. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I suppose we, uh, the, the audio going in and out. I, I can actually, yeah, it's dropping, going in and out. Yeah, go ahead. I think I missed you from you said your guardians would become concerned if you didn't arrive home at a specific time. Yeah, so in those days, you couldn't spend too much time at the record shop. Mm -hmm. uh, even though you wanted to, you had to watch the time because your guardian would think that maybe something happened to you uh, being that you're going to school downtown Kingston. So you right. have to go home on time. So you spend some time in the record shop and, and listen to records and, you know, you move on. some titles that you would like to buy later on. And that's what I basically did. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, in a sense, uh, hearing Skia Rocksteady was sort of a baptism for you, even though you grew up in Jamaica, miss hearing all of that stuff until early reggae, which is the, on or about 68, 69 skinhead reggae took over from Rocksteady. You miss all that era. The Prince Buster, the Derek Morgan, the 30 pieces of silver, uh, all that stuff you miss. Yes, I, I actually missed all of that stuff. I actually, um, when I came to Kingston in about 72, I think around that time, it was probably considered the rockers era. You know, there was a hey. lot of, yeah, there was a lot of, um, you know, like culture, you know, the, the, the reggae um, was the thing, you know, you had like Dillinger, um, you had 
you know, Trinity, the, the, all the DJs, you know, Rankin, Joe, Rankin, Trevor, um, you know, all of these guys were prominent. Right. So you, Roy, you, Roy, set the pace for those guys. You, Roy, came 70, 71. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I, Roy, yeah, my, my introduction to you, Roy, was actually, um, where are you to the ball? When, when mm-hmm. the Paragons, that, that song was where I actually um, met you, Roy. I mean, I meet his music. But when I was growing up as a teenager, it was more like, Dillinger, Rankin, Joe, mm-hmm. all these kind of... Um, so by then, now you're in Kingston, living in Kingston. Yeah, man, I'm living in Kingston at that time. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So you went from hearing music for the first time to buying music. Well, not necessarily hearing for the first time, but uh, it didn't take you very long after your uncle came back from the States with a record player, then you moved to Kingston a handful of years after, and you were able to buy records. So that's really luxury. Yes. You was able to buy a record. <laughs> I tell you. And, and just to see the vinyl and, and the, the, the record. Mm-hmm. Right, so and about when did you relocate to the United States? I think your port of entry was New York, not California. No, New York, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I came to the States, um, probably around 75, 76, 75, 76, somewhere around there. And um, yeah, I, my mother at the time was living in Bronx, New York. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, I think, I think I used to go to a Randy's somewhere in the Bronx. No, it's Andes. Uh, hey, Andes, not Randis. Andes. Andes. Yes, yes. Thanks for the... Yes, that's where I used to go. Yes, Andes. Andes in Brooklyn, for the record. Andes, Brad's, and Tad's were in Brad's. Yeah. I, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I used to go there and buy records uh, immediately. Um, you know, I get summer jobs, and um, and of course, you, you, my mother gives me money for lunch and all that kind of stuff. So, I would save up the money, and um, and buy records because I had this ambition that I was gonna become a DJ, mm-hmm. and so I took my mother um, stereo. She. She had a stereo there and two, um, two small speaker box. And I took her stereo and got another piece of uh, equipment and hooked them up together. And I used a splicer to connect the, one of the, the amp as the top end and the other piece as the bottom end. So I was also not only interested in becoming a DJ, I was now an engineer because <laughs> I knew how to hook, hook this up. And I would play records for my friends and stuff when they come over mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And even for my mother's friends. And they would love the records because I would play a lot of oldies because I, I really loved old records like, you know, the Coxon and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, 
I got introduced to a lot of the Coxon old ska rock steady when I came to New York. <laughs> yes, right. that's when I, that 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 old era of music opened up for me when I came because the record shops in New York were playing them. Mm -hmm. They were playing Coxon, you know, and the, and the Treasure Isle and that kind of stuff because those were the things that were selling, you know. And um, you know that in America, you have a lot of um, people that come from uh, Jamaica mm -hmm. and the people that are working are usually older people. Right. They go and buy records from the record right. shops because they want to reminisce about, you know, Jamaica yes. and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So the record shops were, were just selling a lot of the cocks and stuff and a lot of the the treasure oil and, and all that kind of stuff and, you know, Studio One. And I used to eat it up. I used to buy a lot, you know. When I go to the record shop, I buy at least four or five uh, Coxner Studio One records to take home. Um, you know, 10 to 1, uh, <coughs> all those songs, you know, you, you had to have them in your connection because that's what, when you're playing for your mother's friends, they yeah. love them kind of tune. So they used to tell my, my, uh, my mother says, boy, your boy, oh, he knows so much tune, them tune there. Because of course they were before my time. Right. You know, when I'm playing like blues busters, and those songs, they they wonder how I know about those songs, you know, because they were before my time. But that is just basically what I love. Uh, I love to listen to, and that was my introduction to the ska and rocksteady era is when mm -hmm. I came. To New York. So you had a name for your sound system in New York? Yeah, man, I I had a name for it. I um I called my sound system Dub Symphony. And there's a there's a reason why. But that's I really mid tempos now. Mid mid tempos when dub. Mid seventies. Yeah, that's about seventy seven. Mm -hmm. I love the, the flip side of the the, the record, the, the version. Right. We call the version, but we used to original it. name was version before dub. Uh, in the invention of dub or evolution of dub. Not only yeah not. Just for the instrumental, but because you can talk over it, you know, you can say, you know, and I used to pretend I was a DJ too. So I could DJ like, you know, like Ranking Trevor, Ranking Joe, or Lone Ranger, one of them guys, you know, just mimic them over the version. So that was one of the reasons why I love the, the versions of the, the song, and I called my sound system. Dub Symphony. Dub so Symphony. I, I, yeah, and one of the reasons why I call it Symphony now is because I also admired classic music. So I. And where that exposure to classic music came, came from? Say again. Exposure. Your exposure to cl classical music, where that came from? Oh, that, that, um, that's an interesting uh, point. I mean, question. I am not exactly sure how I got introduced to classical music, but I, I must have heard it somewhere. But it's not only just the classical music uh, uh, introduction why I, I call it symphony. It's because I wanted to, you know, everybody had 
the typical name, you know, for their for their sound system. I wanted to have something that was more classical, you know. So <laughs> a symphony kind of blend in with the dub. So that's why I call it dub symphony. <laughs> of course, the dub symphony never got the, got too far, you know, other than my, my mother's two um um, Kenwood speakers that I end up mashing up. Of course, of course, the rental that they were designed for that kind of place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So from there, how did you uh, get to California? From New York? Oh, you came here for the sunshine. Well, I stayed for the sunshine and and the beautiful women. But how I got to California was that in 1979, I decided to join the US Marines. Actually, I joined uh, the, the Corps merely by, I, I, I would say maybe by default, because when I went into the recruitment um, center, I looked at all the uniforms and I said, no, no, no. Army, no, Navy, no. As, and then I said, I saw a picture with a Marine and I said, yeah, that uniform looked good. I would join that branch. So when I asked for the guy, the recruiter said, he's out for lunch, he'll be back. You can wait. So I sat and waited for him and he came in and I joined. And uh, boy, I tell you, was that a big mistake? When I ended up at the recruit at the uh, Paris Island, in uh, South Carolina, I said to myself, what the hell did I get myself into now? <laughs> so it didn't occur to you that you would not hear reggae music for uh, perhaps a number of years when you're in the army. Like I know when I moved to Brooklyn, I couldn't live anywhere that I couldn't hear music. I couldn't go to jail because I wouldn't hear music because I couldn't live without music because music was like my surrogate mother. I couldn't move to Texas or Arizona unless I know there was music for me to hear, which is why I end up in California. I got to hear music. I mean, Jamaican music, reggae and scare. Well, music um, wasn't necessarily on my mind when I decided to join, uh, join the US Armed Forces. I basically, uh, my, my mother thought I would become in, um, Rude boy. Uh, yes, and she said to me, "You must, you must join the military." And I said, "Well, I have to obey my mother, so I just went ahead and did it." And then, to be quite honest, I I wasn't a big fan of New York. It was quite a culture shock for me. Um, some of the things, like buying records and stuff like that, were things that. Bought, that brought me back to Jamaica in a sense because I've, and that's the reason why I used to go to the record shops so often mm -hmm. because it kind of gave me, uh, it was nostalgic and it kind of gave me a sense of being uh, home, if you may. So the record shops was kind of like a, um, a relief, but I always wanted to get out of New York because I didn't like the crowd, a lot of people, you know, I, I, was, mm -hmm. I came from a small... Mm -hmm. We will ask Courtney. 
telling us telling us about his background growing up in Jamaica and New York. It, was, uh, it took some time to to uh, to grow on you, mm -hmm. and then I said, "Well, I would try to escape from New York." So mm. I joined, the and because um, I know in the military they say you, you would go and see places and all this kind of stuff. So talk about um, music now. When I joined the, uh, when I went on my first deployment in 1979, it took me to Japan. 79. Yes. Mm -hmm. 79, it took me to Japan. There was a small uh, island called Okinawa. Yeah, I've heard of it. And Okinawa is the stark resemblance of Jamaica. Give me an example. Okay. In what sense? Oh, it? yes. And even. Wow. Yeah. Getting on an island had uh, some similarities with uh, Jamaicans living on an island. And um, oh yes, it, um, it I, so I used to love going to the beach in Okinawa. Mm -hmm. Just going to uh, relax on the beach. They had coconut trees and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, but even more so, I found um, shops that sold reggae. Yes. Cassette so you in know, a sense, you were really home. Yeah, so they had these bootleg shops that you could go into where they, they copy the, the, the records, I mean, whatever. And they have them on cassette, you know, and they typed up and everything and look nice. And boy, I used to go out there and buy, you know, Bob Marley. They didn't have a whole lot of stuff. They had like the mainstream stuff like Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Burning mm -hmm. Spear, that kind of thing, you know. Right. Yes. And Jimmy Cliff and all that kind of stuff. And they also had soul music. So American soul music. So I'd buy those and, um, and stock up on those. And I remember I used to play reggae on the bass. And people- Was that a no-no? Was it acceptable? Uh, in some ways it was. Some people would come up to me and say, miners, they call you by your last name. What the hell are you playing? And I said, that is reggae, man, from my country. And I said, reggae? What is that? And I said, it's the music of Jamaica. <laughs> and they're like, and then some of them would um, um, really, you know, like it. Yeah. In those days, people didn't know Bob Marley and all that kind of no, stuff. Uh, I mean, yeah. Too early. And when I started playing Bob Marley, they, they asked me, um, you know, and of course, some of them didn't like it. So they would say, hey, miners, turn off that BS you have on your thing. <laughs> so, but I would still play, you know, I'd probably turn it down, but, uh, you know, I would play reggae. And um, I'm quite sure you got a couple then, of converts, right? You were able to convert a couple yeah, of people. I got another convert, people. Yeah, because, oh, you know, the offbeat forces you to dance. Yeah, and, and then... They start borrowing my cassettes and not returning them. Oh, that's <laughs> that, 
that you know that they, they start to adapt to it, you know. They go, hey, where's my Bob Marley tape? Oh, I'm going to give it back to you, miners. <laughs> Sounds pretty good, man. Sounds pretty good. I like it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so that, that, um, that was my, uh, my uh, thing when I was in Japan. Right. So were you stationed there for years or just temporarily? No, I was temper. I was temporarily stationed there for one year. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so from there, you came back to the states. Yeah. So after that, I came back to California. That's where I was stationed at Camp Pendleton. Oh, and, that's, um, yeah. oh okay. So mm -hmm. after I, yeah. After I got out of the military, I was honorably discharged from the from the corps. I decided to stay in California. I remember I went to LA. Well, I had I had a friend, I had a Jamaican friend that I met when um, we we had went on this adventure to climb Mount Fuji. And I heard this man with a deep accent. And I said, wait, it sounds like a Jamaican man. So I said to him, Wham, you're Jamaican? <laughs> and he looked at me because, you know, I'm fair-skinned and everything. So he right. said, yeah, man, you are Jamaican too? I said, yes, we are Jamaican. <laughs> and we made a bond since then, you know, I, I, we're still friends. As a matter of fact, I was his best man at his wedding. And yeah, Green and I um, made good friends. <laughs> I mean, conversation with Courtney Miners. Uh, from Kingsworth bed and breakfast in Kingston, Jamaica. We're having some technical difficulties. He was in Jamaica. So one weekend we had 72 hours. Mm. We lost Courtney Gare again. Unfortunately, uh, and off we went to go see Dennis Brown and Lloyd Emmons and all this, these people. No, sorry, it wasn't um, Dennis Brown. It was um, Sugar Minot. That was in Los Angeles now. Yeah, it was Sugar Minot. Yeah, not Dennis Brown. Dennis Brown was later. It so you left Sugar from the base to, to concert in Los Angeles, which is, I think the base is relatively close to San Diego. Mm hmm Right. Yes, it is. It is very close to San Diego. Right. So you guys decided to visit Los Angeles to check out a reggae concert. Yeah. So was that we, your first live? Was that your first scene uh, 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 attending a live concert? Yes, that was my first live concert. I, was, I, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, that was my first live concert. Yeah. Uh, I think. Period. I yeah. Think this was my. Coming yeah, in. Concert, not in Jamaica. Uh, people always ask me that too. Hey, Courtney, have you ever been to seen Bob Marley? I said, no, I've never seen Bob Marley in my life. But anyway, so we went off to this concert in Los Angeles, and um, and we Green took us back. We had our doubts that he knew Sugar Minot, but he did, and he took us backstage to meet Sugar Minot, and that was quite a. a an interesting uh, event. And we still talk about it to this day. And that was the first time I went to Los Angeles. So when I got out of, got out of the Marine Corps, 
I decided to grab my duffy bag and head straight to, to LA. Mind you, I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have anything. I just jumped on the Greyhound bus and said, I'm going to Los Angeles because I'm not going back to New York. Of course, I could have went. So uh, I think when you came to New York, uh, Los Angeles the first time, you perhaps um, met some Jamaicans like Mr. Stone, Scorcher, some of those guys who were established in LA, right? And they said, no. I said, well, yeah. this is where I'm staying. Because <laughs> I, I didn't like the snow either. Right. So you met people yeah, like so Mr. Stone. I... You met Stone, yeah, well established. That... That, was, as, that was very centrally located. Crenshaw. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, the Crenshaw I, district. I went, I went to Crenshaw, yeah, to, uh, to the Stones Market to get me some Jamaican food because, you know, you were tired of eating institutional food. So I went to go get some food that uh, I think I, I got oxtail or something like that. And I ate. And then I, was, uh, I asked them if they knew of any place to rent that I could rent an apartment. And they said, not really. So I started walking up the road up Crenshaw and I saw a sign that says apartment for rent. And I, in those days, you didn't have cell phones. So I went to a phone booth and called the number and the landlord was willing to rent me. And I, he says, when do you need it? I said, right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he met me over there and rented me the apartment then and there. I think it was something like $300 a month. So you were in the heart of Crenshaw. I didn't even have a bed to sleep on that night. But then the next day I bought mattresses and stuff like that. And mm. it was very convenient for me because it was right up the street. from. So now you had the luxury of having Jamaican food pretty much every day. And you, I guess you could walk down the street. There were a couple of rec record stores. Mr. Barton was further down uh, on Crenshaw. I think at that time you had Scotcher had a record store. Yeah. I think um, I'm talking to what producer here, Eric Kohler. Yes, Junior. Yeah. Uh, enjoying this conversation, we lost Courtney, but we'll we'll get him back here in a second. He'll he'll get back on. Yeah. Sometimes there's some technical difficulties, but this is a fun one nonetheless. So well, out of our control, I think it's the um, internet service, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Internet service. But I will say uh, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But I had the pleasure of. Are we on now? Uh, we're still on. Yeah. We are still yeah, on. We're, we're, Courtney will dial back mm -hmm. in, but I had the pleasure of doing an adventure tour with Courtney back in 2004. And let's see if you hold it like this. There we go. Yeah. Had a great time uh, down in Jamaica with him. Oh, we'll get Courtney back on here. Um, let me just message him. Right. And um, remind all our viewers that uh, this is the 17th episode and this new platform, YouTube, and we're getting quite a good response. We want to say thanks to the viewers and listeners yes. who have been supporting us. Absolutely. And some memory juggling here, Eric. Uh, who are some of the people we've interviewed again? 
Uh, you, oh. You're doing a fantastic job <laughs> keeping in touch and remembering. Uh, well, uh, I remember most... Greg was number one. Greg oh, yes, yes. Greg, Greg Narvis was number mm -hmm. one. We all said uh, Robert. Uh, Robert from, from Ellington. Uh, Nina and, Cole. Mm -hmm. um, Jerry Miller from The Untouchables. Yes. Lindvall. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, we had uh, Derek Morgan, Stranger Cole. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Keith of Keith and Tex, right. uh, Rhoda Dakar from uh, Body Snatchers, mm -hmm. um, Karina from Dancehall Crafters, Miss Patch, mm -hmm. uh, Jesse from Agrolites. So a broad cross section of yes, female. Here we, go. Male. We, have, mm -hmm. we have Courtney rejoining here, and oh, we'll okay. continue the conversation talking about. We're going to move now into um, Winnie, uh, inspiration behind opening Culture Beat Records in Long Beach here. There we go, Courtney, you're back. Yeah, where am I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it's it's extremely unfortunate that even though um, they upgraded your internet service specifically for this interview, we still I'm not. Looking the, I'm looking. I can't see anything. Oh, that's okay. You, just just hit the, the the video on, and we'll and we'll continue. We're gonna roll into. I think it. If you hit the video, it'll look up automatically. Yeah. Open a window for you. Yeah. In a few seconds, yeah, nice. it'll okay, it'll mm -hmm. come on. Well, what I think I did um, is um, using my iPhone hotspot now, instead all right, of yeah, the regular internet. Yeah, let's try that. Um, if you can just turn well, your, your camera, you. if you can just turn your camera on, the audio is great. Yeah, the audio is good, but I, I don't see anything. On the, I think the lower left, there's a, uh, there should be a button for video. Lower left. Yeah. I think it says Wi-Fi and um, it, it gives you two options. I'm going strictly from memory. And I think you take the top option or option number one, going from top to bottom. For video? Let's see. Oh. We can hear you. Fiddling with the knob, as the DJ would say. <laughs> Courtney? Oh, Hold on. Oh. Yeah, here we go. All right. You should be in now. This meeting is being recorded. Still <laughs> can't see him. Let's see. Oh, much better. It looks better now. Oh, you know, we can't, can't see your period. We can't see you yet. You can see us? Yeah, you can see me. So now, if you just turn no. on the video. So I'll start, yeah, start the oh. video. All right. Mm -hmm. But now, now there's, um, I think you're on, you're on two devices. I'm on what? Are you on two devices? And your computer? No, I'm not on my phone. Hmm. I'm using the phone um, hotspot. Oh. So we are seeing within two. That's all right. It, it, it looks like you might have also joined from your um, from your cell phone. No, I, I joined from the... Um, I, it gave me an option to use Google Chrome. Right. So I'm 
So I, I, I figure since I had a Chrome computer, I would, I would select that one. Right. All right. I'll, all good. This this works. So, um, we're gonna uh, and Courtney, I've, uh, the interview has been amazing so far. We're, we're gonna transition now into the 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 uh, inspiration behind you opening up uh, Culture Beat in Long Beach. So, Junior, I'll let you take it away. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, so take us from Crenshaw, the heart of the Caribbean community at the time, because you have Mr. Stone, you had Freddie, he was well established. You had Culture, Miss Wireways, you had Barton. Uh, and a couple other record stores were in the area and Jamaican restaurants. So take us back to there and then how you got to Long Beach. Okay, well, um, you felt quite at home because you had the community support um, and you feel like as if you were home away from home because you know you have the Jamaican food and you have Jamaican music and of course, you know, there were uh, sound systems like Whirlwind and um, Ron Miller and all these uh, guys, you know, you know, playing music and stuff like that. So the whole music scene opened up right there in terms of uh, records and stuff like that. In those days, they played records. They, they didn't have CDs and stuff like that. So I was living in Los Angeles for a little while and um, I decided to um, open a business. And there was this guy named Landu that had a, a rehearsal studio over on Adams Avenue, I think it was. But he had lost his location. And I rented this big uh, place that I had this ambition to open a, a vegetarian store called Ital Vital. But decided I wanted to do a rehearsal studio because of course uh, I always love music. So I started, I went and got Landu and he was running the rehearsal studio next door. And we had quite a, a few people that came there and rehearsed, including um, Steve Pulse one time mm. and rehearsed and, um, and some other people, you know, like um, we used to have um, a lot of the local, um, like, the Rastafarians, you know, Jashaka, um, Prince Ital Joe, all of the all of the local guys and used to come and rehearse there whenever they have a show or something mm -hmm. like that. And and what time period uh, for the record? So what time period was that? This was about um, 1982, 83, thereabout. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so I hang out at the in the Los Angeles scene for a little while. And then um, I met my, who, uh, this girl who later became my wife. Um, and she lived in Long Beach. I remember when I first met her, she was driving a Volkswagen. But what caught my attention, she was driving a standard vehicle. And I said, wow, and I'm, I'm, I'm a woman driving a standard Volkswagen. I couldn't believe that. And she was beautiful. And she she and I was going out for a very short period. And she said, um, why don't you go to my college? And I said, where is your college? She told me where her college was. And I said, sure, I'll go to your college. She actually owned a college. No, no, no. She, <laughs> <laughs> she had deep pockets. Eh? 
He was attending Long Beach State. Uh -huh. <laughs> State, uh, Long Beach. And at the time, I had got out of the military and of course, I was just hanging around the rehearsal studio thing and all that kind of stuff. So she wanted me to, uh, well, the, I tell you what, the, the rehearsal studio was on a decline and business wasn't too good. So I decided that I was gonna get up out of Los Angeles and go to Long Beach to attend Cal State Long Beach. So I took the test, I got accepted and I was attending there doing electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And um, one year, I decided that, um, well, no, we, I got her pregnant and we had a boy, His, uh, I call him Champs. And things was kind of tough. So I said, boy, the only thing that can help me now is to start a business. So I decided to start a record shop. As I thought about what kind of business could I start? I said, well, must be a record shop because I love um, records and stuff like that. So I decided to start the record shop. In those days, I when I first started, I started selling framed posters of um, American uh, idols like um, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, and of course, Bob Marley. So I used to get the posters from Zed's records. Mm -hmm. And where that shop was located? Your first shop was located in Long Beach, exactly where? It was located at, at um, 814 East 4th Street. Mm -hmm. A rough part of town, eh? Yeah, the, the Fort and Alamitos. Yes, so to get the attention of people and, and to make money as well, I would line up my post, my frame posters on the sidewalk of, you know, Bob Marley, um, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, all of the, you know, and a lot more other rock and roll um, um, stars. And people would stop and buy, buy the, uh, the frame posters. And in a way, I got them into the store to look at other things. Of course, I had reggae records in the store and some of them a lot of them weren't interested in the reggae records but as time went on people started to gravitate towards the store and it became a big popular place to hang out and um you know and buy records of course and more and more you know you go to the concerts at um dominguez hill and all of these places and you give out flyers and cards and you get a lot of support from the local um, reggae scene and people started to come into the shop, you know. We sold t-shirts and and um, all this kind of stuff that uh, were reggae related. And that really caught on because you specialize in one particular thing. And you, when you're good at it, people People used to send, I mean, the, the guys who were reps, reggae reps at um, Music Warehouse and Music Plus and all those places would send, and even Zed's Records would send customers to us because we specialize in reggae. And I would get 
you know, everything from A to Z. And, um, and of course, the um, Long Beach uh, two-tone skins and all of these things, I got introduced to it through the record shop because these uh, customers would come in and they would, you know, well, ask for some uh, uh, records, you know, like Prince Busters and all that kind of stuff. And you would have to go and buy them, you know, get them from Jamaica or from New York or wherever, because that's what they wanted. But that was my first introduction to, to like the uh, two-tone skins. Mm -hmm. So I was learning as well, you know, being a, a merchant. Uh, in the store, a lot of people would come in and and tell me things about you know the two tone scene and you know in those days you had all these uh, different bands. I used to play at the country club and some other venues in um, in Los Angeles. But sometimes I would be invited there and I would go there, and some of the promoters. Uh, from outdoor shows would would ask me if I would host uh, in store at mm -hmm. my at my shop. So I would gladly right. accept. Yeah, you have like um, the mighty Bus Stones and and um, you know these other groups uh, would come to sign records and stuff like that at, at the shop and. That was really my introduction to um, to, mm -hmm. to the two-tone movement. How about Sublime? I know they're from Long Beach and they were around at that time. Uh, you yeah, those guys? I met I met um, Sublime later on when I moved to Seventh Street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Fourth Street was a very small shop, very tiny shop. Right. And I had this idea of expanding and getting more um, visibility. So I moved into a mall. I think it was Pickensay Mall at the time, shopping center. And um, of course, you know, a lot of traffic come through there. And, um, and that's where I met uh, Sublime, Eric and Brad and all of them. But uh, yeah. And they used to come by the shop and hang out, and um, and we we had one thing in common uh, for sure, and that was smoking weed. <laughs> Back in those days, I used to smoke. <laughs> I used to smoke a lot of weed, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and um, but rumor has it that you corrupted a lot of people in Long Beach with weed and among other things. No man, they they corrupted me. <laughs> <laughs> them guys they were buttheads yeah come to think of it because growing up in jamaica you weren't exposed to weed and you went to catch no, no, then I, I, so, I was an altar boy so the corruption came here in los angeles <laughs> the corruption came from los angeles and um and later but they were some nice they were, they were really nice um set of people i mean if I was to rate my time in America, I, mm -hmm. I would say Long Beach was the best time of my life mm -hmm. in America. Long Beach was such a, a special place. I, I'm sure it, 
it still remains a special place, but mm. to me, it's a special place in my heart. And the but to refer that, to the holy herb as corruption, uh, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh would really, and some of those guys would really disagree violently with you. <laughs> yes. Our, our, our definition of well, herb. <laughs> you know, you remember that in those days I was, I was very young, you know, I was, I was in my twenties, um, going on to my thirties. Mm -hmm. I think I left Long Beach when I was probably about 33. Mm -hmm. No, sorry. I left Long Beach when I was about 35 or mm -hmm. 34, 35. So, you know, you were young, you were exploring, you were adventuring and you were just living your life as a, as a young person. And that's what young people uh, do. Right. And, yeah, so you so, also ventured into live, uh, live concerts. Yeah, man. And we used to go to the concerts all over the place. Dominguez Hill, <laughs> uh, UCLA concert. Yeah. And of course, um, the, the Bob, Bob Marley. Marley was Bob Marley. Day. Yeah, that, that was all. Mm -hmm. something that we look forward to. Right. You even had your own production, um, Monkey Boost production. Oh, yes. And after a while... I Which decided... is sort of an odd name for a Jamaican to use monkey boot production. Right. So I tell you, London. Uh, right. Because what happened was how I, how I came up with that name was, again, my introduction to the two-tone scene. Mm, in, uh, okay. And, you know, they had the braces and the button-down suit, and I thought that that was so um, neat, you know, that uh, these kids dressed like that with the Doc Martens and their shoes were shiny and, and they were just clean cut as opposed to like the reggae, you know, with the Rasta and the, you know, they, they you know, they, they don't dress as neat and proper as the two-tone people and I thought that you know I would like to mimic some of that so of course I got my suit and all that kind of stuff and and yeah. I didn't a Doc Martin well I got a Doc Martin later on but I was introduced to monkey boots which was something that the two-tone people wore but they didn't like monkey boots too much because of the the, the sole on the monkey boots, it um, it would leave scud mark on on say your tile or something like that if you drag your feet. But I like them because the bottom of them had these kind of four wheel drive tire look. And I said, well, I'm going to name my production monkey boots production because I love the shoes. So I put the shoe as the logo on the um on the monkey boost production mm -hmm. i started doing shows um at the fenders ballroom um you know your first I, concert at the fenders yeah my my first concert actually on our about when that came about your first um i would say probably about um 93 thereabouts mm -hmm. 
or it could have been 92, 92, 93. And my first show was actually, I I think in a great part, I must give credit to, um, to Sublime and them because they kind of, you know, coming by the shop and smoking weed and we're hanging out and stuff like that. They, uh, Brad used to say to me, Corny, you must do a show with us. And I was thinking, that's a good idea. So I started taking my customers' name and addresses and stuff like that because I thought that I would do a mailer and mail out invitations to to the customers about the show. And that went very well because at one point I had, in no time I collected over 3000 names and, um, and addresses and stuff. And I would do these mailers out. So my first show was with Sublime. And, <laughs> um, and I think the next one was with uh, Hepcat. And yeah, cause I got, you know, I had this idea that I was gonna start big. <laughs> But start what? I was gonna start big. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that, that was big. Yeah, so I I didn't know that Subline had such a huge following, but being they were friends, I put them on the show. And I remember nervously I was driving over to to uh Fenders to think that oh well, nobody's gonna show, you know, I might have. 10 people there or whatever, whatever it's going to be. When I got around the corner at Broadway there, the line was already at the other corner. And I said, holy cow. Well, I didn't say holy cow, but I won't use the words that I, I use here. So you don't Jamaican. use, so you use, when you curse, you use Jamaican word like blood clot, rascal, or American word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Junior said that, not me. <laughs> Yes, I when I come. No, it's, it's country, becoming acceptable now. A lot of Americans are accepting those words. Yeah, I you know seen that seen as curse word. Mark, um, blood clot one day. But anyway, I come around the corner and I see the line stretch all the way around the corner. I said, "Rascal, look at this man, man, what is going on?" I said, "Man," so I drive up to the thing now, you know, and boy, I feel proud now, you know, because I said, what is this a show sellout? So I come out, on, come on, I went into the venue and the place, already, the place was already packed inside. <laughs> Courtney so, has arrived as a promoter. <laughs> yes, and I, I'm the promoter, right? So I walk into the place and the place is already packed <laughs> inside. The, the ballroom is packed and outside the line gone around the corner. I said, man, finally, I, I hit something. Yes. And who are the artists for the records? Hebcat, uh, Sublime. Um, I think it was Scandals. And um, I don't remember, I don't remember any other uh, names right now. But somebody some years ago showed me some flyers that they posted on uh, Facebook. But I know that um, See, what I did was I had shows every Saturday for the month and I would send out the mailer mm -hmm. with the groups that I would have for that month. So this right. Saturday would be Sublime, next Saturday would be Hepcat and so on, Scandals and so on. 
And of course, some of the groups never made it onto the flyer because the, the flyer was on, I mean, the mailer was only a postcard size. So it would be three inch maybe by um, five inch or six inch uh, wide. So you can't fit everybody on there. But you would have opening acts because people would, groups would call you and ask you to put them, you know, Israelites, all of these other groups would call you, you know, some of them from River, as far as Riverside, San Bernardino, and those places, they would call the shop because, of course, they come to the shop all the time and ask me to put them on the flyer as opening act or just let them open up for the group. So we would have like three bands opening up and then the main group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in those you, days- You started out very successful. Yes. And in those days, I tell you, boy, that first show, um, um, Sublime charged me 600 US dollars. But the amount of money I won't uh, say, well, I made about $5,000 off that uh, show. <laughs> your first show. 5,000 US. And when I collected- Your first show. That was your first show. That was the first show. And after I collected, um, the, the gate man bring me the $5,000 and I counted the money. I said, I never see so much money in one time. I said, whatever you collect afterward, just keep that for you on the other security then. Because <laughs> I, I felt so good about it. Generosity. <laughs> yeah. I so, figure out so take us from there now to um, some of the dancehall show. Because I remember my first time to Fender was to see Nicodemus and some other guys. Um, take us from Skia. I guess, uh, yes. and two-tone, you continue as, as a promoter and you evolve into reggae, right? Yes, yeah, so I, um, once I got a call from um, a gentleman from the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, his name was, his name is um, Stephen Franks. And um, somehow he got a hold of me from probably from, um, from um, Russell. Russell, 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 yeah, Russell used to come to the shop, you know, and Russell was just a little boy. I, I'm sure he's a big man now, but um, he's always like, you know, telling people about the shop. And, um, and so I think he might have told uh, Stefan about me and Stefan called me and said, they were doing an album with Nicodemus in a, a hip hop type of, you know, song with all his hits like Susie Wong and, um, you know, all of these songs. But they were doing a hip hop mix. And mm -hmm. they were also doing a tour to promote the album, the release of the album. So he called and asked me if I would take up the um, Southern California, well, particularly uh, Los Angeles leg of the tour. And of course, I wouldn't have said no. So I did that. But before that, I'd, I had done another show with, um, well, we attempted doing another show with Charlie Chaplin and Peter Brooks and the Roots Radix band that never went through. We did I think that was a Rust tour. Yeah, that, that, 
that band didn't, um, didn't, I'm sorry, that concert didn't make it because we did it at the Egyptian ballroom and the, the electricity, there, electricity there wasn't, um, wasn't good. Uh, I think Roberto from K-Rock at the time uh, mm. was the MC there, was supposed to be the MC there. And then um, well, I remember Robert calling me and said, um, he's on his way. I said, don't bother. He says, why? I said, because the show not going on. We canceled the show because the electricity in the, in the building is no good. And Robert, uh, with his, his wisdom, says, but you should have called me and tell me we could have rented a generator. And that never dawned on me that, we, you know, because I was so new in promotions or, what, or concerts, I didn't know anything about renting a generator and the show could have gone on. So anyway, we come back to the Nicodemus and Daddy Freddy and all those guys at the Fender's Ballroom now. I decided to do reggae. Well, the reggae never caught on very well for me. I lost my tail on it and I said, boy, I would never do reggae again. So I'm just gonna stick to the ska <laughs> and uh, the two-tone uh, thing. Of course, I never did neither of them after that. Um, so tell us about your move. You moved from 4th Street to 2nd, from 4th Street to 7th Street. 7th Street, yeah. I um, moved a, a big, much bigger place. Yes, I moved from 4th Street now and I went to 7th Street. And um, again, that's where I, you know, I met people like Sublime and, um, and all these other uh, people and we used to go to Golden Sales and all of that for concerts there, uh, shows there. Mm -hmm. Guy used to do um, a reggae say, uh, boat ride right there. Yeah, and it was quite an interesting uh, venue. I tell you one time they were having um, toots uh, at Golden Sales and me and my friend, uh, Dave, Ross Dave, was sitting out in the lounge area. And we were just sitting there waiting to go inside. Lo and behold, Toots comes up, pull out a seat and sit down beside us and start talking to us as if we had known him from somewhere. That's the kind of guy he is. Yeah, so we were sitting there talking to Toots, uh, you know, totally taken back. Uh, so when he got up, he says, "May have to go work now, you know. So, me talk, talk to him later, all right? And then, and then walk off. So I look at Dave, I said, Dave, you know him? Dave said, no, me think you know him. <laughs> no, that's the truth. <laughs> I said, was, yeah, so that's how I met um, uh, and, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the reggae scene in um, Long Beach started, started to pick up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know. But Long Beach at that time was known as the, uh, I suppose, a reggae city because of the Bob Marley Day because uh, Bob Marley Day was taking place at that time to the best of my memory if the 90s now yes Bob Marley yes. Day was huge so everyone knew Long Beach as a reggae town so to speak mm -hmm. globally not just here right and you had you, you know it, it was the perfect um, setting and backdrop for reggae because you have you know you have the the skaters the surfers 
um, you know, the, the old heads, the ganja uh, people. And so it was, it was a perfect home for reggae. So, <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the reasons why reggae strived so much in Long Beach in those days was because of those factors, because, you know, you had people who supported the scene and, and you can, you know, bet if you did a show that you would have a good turnout. But people who come from as far as Orange County, um, you know, Riverside, San Bernardino to attend shows in, in Long Beach, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and also the fans came to your store uh, in, you know, Scare Rock City fans in particular visit your, yeah. visited your store because it was so unique in Long Beach. Yes, it was. And we saw How did you get to Los Angeles now? Oh, you yes. Decided to expand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then um, after, uh, you know, I was doing so uh, well at the Long Beach store, I decided that I should go, I should expand the store and go to Los Angeles because at the time, Los Angeles was picking up in terms of sound system and dance hall. Dance hall was now starting to become prominent. Mm-hmm. And as a business person, I'm thinking, um, you know, strategy. I, I want to. Mm-hmm. Enter the, I want to take advantage of a market. And so the idea was to open a store in Los Angeles and that store would focus mainly on the dance hall music, dance hall scene, you know, for the, you know, supplying records to the sound systems because they had many sound systems in Los, in Los Angeles now, you know, yeah. Um, I mean, Kilo One, you had, um, uh, studio first, you had uh, Whirlwind, of course, you had Ron Miller, you had all of these uh, places. And of course, the clubs that were in Los Angeles, you know, needed records to play. They were actually playing real records in the shops, in, I'm sorry, in the clubs, the mm-hmm. DJs were playing records. And so that was a market that I wanted to explore and take advantage of. So I opened up the Los Angeles store to meet that demand because there was a demand. Mm-hmm. And what we would do is to bring, um, you know, everything under one roof. So we would get like the green sleeve records because from uh, England and Ernie B records uh, was one of the main suppliers of these type, you know, the English stuff, and then I would get records from uh, Aquarius Records out of Miami. So I had the connections to bring the dancehall music into the marketplace through uh, the second store in Los Angeles, and to me the the rising demand for um, for dancehall vinyl, mm-hmm. and yes. And it was it was going very well, very well. Well, you know, one important bit of information that uh, we left out is mm-hmm. the name Culture Beat, a unique spelling of K U L C H A Culture Beat record. Was that was the name of both stores, 
or just the Los Angeles tour? Well, let me give, let me go a little flashback. Mm -hmm. um, when I decided, well, when I was thinking of a name for this tour, I thought of several names, but the reason I chose Culture Beat is because I, um, I thought about the Jamaican culture and I said, well, I'm going to sell the Jamaican culture. So I will put culture and then the, the beat represented the music. So I put it together and call it culture beat. Now, after some years of having the name culture beat spelled, you know, the normal way, I realized that there was a band named culture beat. So I said, holy cow. I didn't know that there was this band named Culture Beat. So I said, well, to spare any conflict, mm -hmm. I'm going to put a, sp a, a spin on the spelling. <laughs> so I, I spelled it K-U-L-C-H-A, but it's pronounced the same way, Culture Beat. And that's how the, the, uh, the spelling uh, changed because mm -hmm. I wanted to avoid, because remember now that I had two stores, and they both had the same name, right? Culture Beat, Long Beach, yeah. and Los Angeles. Yes, actually, the Los Angeles store, I'm sorry, the, the Los Angeles store is where the name actually, uh, where I changed it. Mm -hmm. I changed it administratively for on our record, but the sign on the building still spelled uh, Culture Beat. Yeah, because I, I, I didn't want to have a you know, a situation where I ended up uh, having to pay somebody for maybe stealing their name, or they probably think I, you know. Even though the store was before Culture Beat, right? So what year did you open the first store in Long Beach? I opened the first store in Long Beach in 1988. Mm -hmm. That was the first time, yeah, 88. Right, well, I'm not sure. If, yeah, yes, it's, I think it's 88, either 87 or 88. Mm -hmm. uh, it might have been the ending of 87. Right. Yeah, because I remember it was my, it was my, um, uh, I think it was the final semester for that year. Um, mm -hmm. I decided to um, withdraw from from Cal State Long Beach to focus mainly on the on the business. Mm -hmm. And I remember my girlfriend later become my wife told she totally disagreed that I should not do that. <laughs> she also disagreed that I should not use my um, financial aid and my financial grant to start the store. <laughs> Is what I, yeah, you mean the I second store in Los Angeles. No, man, the first tour oh, the is first tour. The mm. first tour, I, I use my financial aid from Cal State Long Beach and my financial grant. The financial grant, um, the financial been serving in the, was, in the US Army. was a no payback, but the financial aid I had to pay back. I used both of them. I, I think it was something like 4,000 US dollars to rent the place. I rented it for three, $300 a month. It was a fixer-upper and having a little bit of 
uh, building skills, I was able to build, uh, fix it up myself and, um, and stock it up with uh, some of the money. And, um, and then I was going to the school at the same time, but I would only open the store when I get out of class at 11 o'clock. Uh, my last class at 11 o'clock, but sometimes I have class in the evening and that became a conflict. So I decided to withdraw from, from college and focus mostly mm -hmm. on, the, on the store. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we would be remiss not to talk about uh, Los Angeles tour and when you run into some problem with the law, perhaps big problems with the law. Oh yes, Ma major problem. Uh, one morning about April, uh, 17, uh, 1997, mm -hmm. about 4am in the morning, I had some guys with three letters, uh, in their name show up at my, at my door, uh, FBI, CID, DEA, and all this. And all those guys, always three letters, never four. Always three <laughs> letters, ATF, you name it. And they all uh, showed up at uh, my door and they said- um, Not the record store, but your place of residence. Well, they, sh they showed up at my place of residence, but at the time I was separated from my wife. And so I had built this store conveniently to have everything in it that I need. You know, a loft in the back, in the, in the back of the store, kitchen, uh, you know, shower, everything. So this was the, the, the mecca of all the, the culture bees that I have ever, because all the stores I built myself. Mm. Yes. I, I didn't know I was so creative. Yeah, man, I, I have, you know, my, my, cause remember I was studying electrical engineering at Cal State. So I had a engineering um, background and, uh, and aspirations. So I basically built the stores myself, put them together myself. And um, so I had fixed up this one to have everything that the other uh, stores didn't have. And so I was separated from my wife at the time and I was staying in the back of the store with my, my dog, uh, um, a Chinese chow I named Honey. And so I had these guys show up there. Honey was barking and I said, what the hell is going on? So I went there, I looked and uh, they said, Mr. Miners, we have a search warrant for your uh, place. And so I figure, oh, they can search all they want. They wouldn't even find a ganja seed in here because I was a smooth operator. I, I thought I was. So I never kept paraphernalia, ganja paraphernalia with me. Uh, matter of fact, most people never knew I smoked. And so they came in and they searched the place and- uh, But they weren't uh, looking for ganja paraphernalia. Yeah, well, they were looking for it because they, one of the agents said to me, uh, Mr. Miners, we know you are a big ganja dealer and you must have a stash in here. So you must tell us where it is and make life much easier. I said, well, I don't have any stash in here. And um, as a matter of fact, I don't even know what name Ganja. <laughs> so so they use the word Ganja or marijuana or weed. Marijuana, marijuana. Marijuana, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I was arrested. Um, 
charged with conspiracy and money laundering because in fact, you know, and probably most people would not admit that gun marijuana and the reggae industry is intricately intertwined. And I, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I'm speaking for myself that, you know, I would buy um, ganja from um, marijuana from uh, Mexicans. We got it at a good price and we would try to make some profit on it, quick profit. So I, I, was, I was acting like a middle person. And I guess I already accepted my responsibility. So the FBI can't arrest me again. Right. For, for admitting. And I did admit that I, that's what I was doing. So I would buy the ganja, sell it back, or buy the marijuana and sell it back, make a small profit. And then I would use that money now to launder it through the stores to this, you know, buy records and, you know, so if you ever wonder where all those boxes uh, uh, came from, it was- oh, so that's what's called, that's called laundering. Laundering so, yeah. money. That's, the, that's what they define as laundering money. Yeah, so but yeah. You sell weed, I, buy records. Yeah, so I sold uh, marijuana and I bought records. Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, supply to my, my customers who were very demanding. And um, we must admit that reggae, in those days, I would say it was probably still a novelty because um, we, we sold a lot of records, but um, I wouldn't say that we ma I made a lot of money from it. I, I did it because I loved doing it. I, I wasn't um, making, you know, a, a gang of money from, from the, I probably, if I was, if I had taken up the marijuana selling full time, I probably would have made more money selling marijuana than selling records. But I was dipping my foot, one foot in selling marijuana and uh, one foot in selling um, records, but selling records was where my heart was. So I didn't focus too much on the marijuana selling, um, but I, I needed the money. The money was uh, good and I could buy records with it and supply the stores. And that, that was a good part of it. But most now people under the perception uh, that it was drugs, heavy, hard drugs, gone the whole nine yards, or when maybe 10 yards. Yeah. That th those other guys wouldn't come for you if it was just weed alone. I mean, uh, you know, I- uh, Well, what had happened mean. was, is that um, I, I was, selling um, marijuana to um, other persons and those persons were involved in other activities. And that's how the FBI uh, placed me in a group of conspirators whom I, I never met. Um, I only knew 
maybe two or three persons on the indictment. But, you know, they f what the FBI does is they follow a trail. Mm. Or the trail led them to my shop as, as a uh, point where uh, there was some of the activity, but not all of the activity. So that's how you get caught in caught up in a conspiracy. And um, a matter of fact, I remember the agent saying to me that he cannot believe that they find no marijuana in my place and I'm supposed to be this big dealer. Well, I said, later on, they realized that they were misinformed that I was not actually a big dealer. I was just a minor player in the whole in the whole thing so yeah so after that no um of course you know i did a little time in the federal prison and then i was removed from the united states um to jamaica mm -hmm. in 2001 That's so if correct. you were a citizen they could not deport you right yeah i that was uh a catastrophic mistake you make by not getting your citizenship? Well, yeah, when I left the U.S. Marines, um, I could have become a U.S. citizen, but I had this ambition that I was not going to give up my Jamaican citizenship. And I, I felt like I wanted to uh, remain a Jamaican you know, I, I thought foolishly that if you had given up your Jamaican citizenship and become a citizen of another country, that you had, so to speak, sell out. You know, so I had this very um, foolish ambition, if you may, or foolish pride that um, you could have. I could actually be both. I could be a U.S. citizen and I could have been a Jamaican. <laughs> so, right, so that means they could not have deported you. Yeah. You all, is not, all is not lost. If you no, no, no. We're not, we, I know you're doing exceptionally well now, but I'm just saying mm -hmm. for, for clarity, if you were a U.S. citizen, you could not be deported. Am I right? Right. Or right? Yeah. Right? Right. right. So because you're a non-citizen, then they took advantage. Even though you served the United States faithfully for four years or thereabout. Yeah. And you were willing to die um, in battle if there was a need. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but yet and still. So they didn't take that into consideration. Said, oh, let's, I mean, did your lawyer argue for you to get a break to stay here? Right. Yeah. They, um, to give credit to the, uh, to the U.S. Immigration Department, they, they tried uh, because mm -hmm. the, yeah, what happens um, under the new Immigration Act is that the Congress relieves the immigration uh, judge of all authority. Oh. And now he's bound by the 1997 um, Immigration Reform Act. So they, he cannot use his discretion, which he would have used given my background. You know, mm -hmm. uh, a matter of fact, they delayed up to a year removing me because they were trying to find some avenue 
of which they could um, make a claim for me to stay. Right. And um, that was um, exhausted, and um, and then they finally removed me. So. Mm -hmm. So now you're fabulously well in Kingston, uh, Jamaica, the place of your birth. Uh, you have no regret living in the United States. Uh, you have established your own business. Take it from there. What are you doing now? Yeah, I, you're I really, a successful businessman, right? Yeah, I, I really uh, miss. Um, I, I I missed uh, living in the U.S. I, I miss. Uh, my friends, uh, all the friends, that, uh, most of my friends that I have developed, I mean, you know, were in, were living in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I came back to, to Jamaica in 2001. And again, I, you know, I entered the uh, missionary uh, world. And um, then I started to, um, I started a business called Jamaica Tour Guide. And I think Eric, Probably was one of my first customers. Okay, what a fantastic <laughs> way to segue! Into Cor that, so. What a speaking. fantastic way to segue! Courtney speaking <laughs> of which, look at this. Yeah, <laughs> here he is. No, a younger, a younger Courtney and a younger Eric. Yes, this was uh, right. yes. uh, 2004. Young, <laughs> you are still yeah, yeah. 2004. Um, you picked you picked me up, and and my girlfriend at the time, we went to. Um, we did a nice tour. I remember seeing Dun River Falls. Probably I was in the grill, and we spent mm -hmm. spent the day together. And it was, it was uh, you know, I hadn't seen you obviously since the uh, L.A. Culture Beat, and um, yeah, I really really enjoyed that. And and I, and this this interview has been so fascinating. Courtney, I have to tell you, we've talked about this, but when when Ireno, um, my old friend and business partner for Reagan Nucleus Magazine, <coughs> when, when he and I first started the magazine back in 94 shortly after that is when we went to um to your shop for the first time you gave us and i can't remember specifically but you you really gave us some great advice from a business standpoint and, and introduced us to different folks um that were also in the store because both your locations long beach and la as you know you know jess i junior there and russell and, and, and i know guys from hepcat and just so many so many people from the scene djs would come there buy your music but also just hang out Right and, and and talk and and you know hear stories and so um, it was just such a it was such a great time and and the Long Beach location I, I'm I'm a graduate of Cal State Long Beach um, so we so we share in some of that yes 49ers um, um, but but just a few follow up questions so uh, you talked about discovering ska two tone ska and, and two tone and and, and uh, skinhead culture, um, but did you make it, so it was a conscious decision for you to, especially maybe in Long Beach, to carry a selection of the classic Jamaican music, right? Modern maybe Jamaican music, because I, I bought Yellow Man CD there and, and, uh, and a few others, but, but you had a good balance and there weren't too many locations I think that had selections of American or British music, right, ska, and Jamaican at that time, British, right? So, so this was a conscious decision, and, and did that did that pan out well for you? Yeah, um, actually, it was the influence of the people who were coming into the store, um, asking for uh, these records, and they also introduced me to the to the scene. 
So they would come in and ask for like the specials who I never knew anything about, Madness, uh, English Beat. And so this opened up a whole new area, mm. um, a, a whole new genre, if you may, right. of music. And, you know, so I would want to listen to it and, and you know, and buy, you know, get more uh, of this kind of records into the store because people were just basically asking for it. But they, they already were buying the, the Jamaican music. You had people come in and them want Prince Buster and them mm -hmm. want, you know, uh, hip tones and they want this kind of music and they want uh, Scatterlights, Don Drummond and yeah. all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. So they, you know, and then some people come in and say, oh, have you ever heard of the selectors? I said, no, I never heard of them. But I had connections with all kind of distributions. So I would call a distributor and say, uh, do you have um, selector, do you have madness? And they say, oh yes, we have it. And then it's, it's opening up right now. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going down here to go right. buy the madness um, albums and, and the selectors album and the boss, mighty Bostonians and all yeah. this kind of stuff, right. buying them and stocking them in the store and people are coming in to, to buy them, you know? And then you have groups like Israelites and, and all these groups that would, you know, start to do their recordings and produce their little cassettes. A lot of them were like black and white cassettes. Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah, they come and offer them, you know, Courtney, can you stock our, our records in, in the store or our cassettes and whatnot? Yeah. And I say, yes, and I would, you know, stock it for them and, and people would come in and buy it, you know, mm -hmm. and they come in and say, I have the, the, the Scandals um, cassette or, or even Sublime. Sublime uh, come in, uh, bought their cassette uh, for the ounce of freedom. And right? Yeah. In the store. And, and if I'm not mistaken, is that the album where, where, where Culture Beat and, and, and your name might be, be mentioned? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's funny because <laughs> I was talking to a guy from Australia one day about Sublime, and he says to me, are you um, Courtney Culture? I said, <laughs> yeah. He says, don't you know Sublime mentioned your name on the record? I said, no, I didn't know that. Because <laughs> I make a confession now. I have never listened to Sublime <laughs> until, that, until that point. But I remember Brad used to come into the shop, and he wants me to play ah fine he want me to play black you were every all of these songs and i didn't know that they were doing covers of them right they're also freedom yeah because i just i i was very um prejudiced if you may i only listen to jamaican music <laughs> <laughs> well but you're but you're, you're... <laughs> I must make it clear. I want to listen to Jamaican music, and so that 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 is a good benefit because when somebody comes into the store and they say, "Courtney, I heard this song on Junior Francis radio program," and I said, "What's the name of the song?" They say, "I don't know, but it had a line that goes, um, guess who's coming to dinner?'" 
I said, oh, that's Black Uruman. I have this uh, over here. So I could find the record for uh, them. Right. Just, um, singing some songs. But I started to listening, listening to the selectors, bad manners and all this kind of stuff. And it opened up a whole different area uh, for me of learning. Sure. And so it was a learning experience for me and a very good um, experience because I was learning the local ska scene. Right. And of course, I already knew the, you know, the local reggae scenes. Right. Because yeah, so, so, it, so it was reciprocated. I mean, they were learning from you. I, I could only imagine how much of the influence you playing some of the classic Jamaican music for Sublime, for, uh, you know, for other, other um, you know, uh, potential customers that came into your, to your shop. Um, the, the other importance of your shops uh, at that time, obviously all pre-internet era, was, you know, picking up flyers and posters and people learning about upcoming shows and, you know, and, and that's that's why we had you know our magazine uh, dropped off at your locations as well. I mean, it was it was a great place to to uh, you know find out about what's upcoming, you know where to go. Um, what about what about the scooter cultures? Some of those shows at Fenders, people ride their Lambrettas and Vespas. Yeah, man. Um, we used to have the scooter clubs them show up in front of Culture Beat and on Fourth Street there, and even on Seventh Street and um, just park up their scooters. And it was amazing because you have so many scooters out there. You used to have, a, um, a, I had a friend named um, Gerald Lockstock, who uh, I think he had a scooter club called um, uh, G-Spot or something like that. <laughs> I don't remember exactly. But um, Gerald used to bring a lot of his friends over because they used to have these rallies like out in Orange mm -hmm. County. You know, yeah. Where, yeah, all the scooters. Yeah. I remember some years ago when I first came back to Jamaica, I was thinking to myself, say, oh, come on, never seen a scooter, a Vespa in Jamaica. <laughs> I'm going down the, the new highway and I see a Vespa, a man riding a Vespa on the other side of the road. I went to my country where I was born back in Westmoreland and a guy had one sitting in his garage. Wow. And I said, what happened? Sell me that Vespa, no? He said, no, man, I will never sell this. <laughs> he's smart. <laughs> yes, he's very smart. And yeah. uh, they, uh, you know, I'm connected with a lot of engineers here in Jamaica. And the guy who actually consulted to build the Mandela Highway told me that in the 1960s, he rode around Europe on a Vespa. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, Vespa um, culture been around a long time. And I was just so happy to meet all these people with these beautiful, um, you know, motorcycles, uh, Vespa motorcycles. Yeah, yeah. And them hang around my shop was just a blessing. Yeah. And they're the mods uh, people, yeah. you know, sure. they were very, very supportive. And um, I have to give my thanks to them for, um, you know, their support and all the, the people from Long Beach, the, the two-tone people, the, the ganja heads them, <laughs> right. the surfers, the skaters. Um, a, wide, a, wide, a wide range, right. Um, it, it, here's a question know, from, 
here's a question from somebody you know, DJ uh, uh, Two-Tone Ted Morris. So uh, <laughs> his, his question for you, Courtney, was, so you had a mural outside of the LA office, right? Uh, LA location, that mural of, of, of records. How did that come about? Oh, yes. Um, well, it was strictly decorative for me. Um, I, I thought of, um, you know, putting something on the, because the building was just so plain. And I wanted to add something to it because I'm always thinking about spoofing up the, the look of the building that it would attract people. And I thought, what would be better than to put the record labels, you know, on the building? And that way, if people were passing and they see a Studio One label or Jammies or something. It would be eye-catchy. Yeah, it would be eye-catching, yeah. A matter of fact, I had a I had an A-frame that was sitting on the LA store uh, on the sidewalk, and it was painted in um, neon red, gold, and green. Mm. And the city called me one day because it was so eye-catching. People were breaking it the time they passed by. <laughs> the city called me and asked me if I could kindly remove it. <laughs> there was no law it's causing problems remove it but they were asking me for right. safety reasons and the fact that it might cause vehicular accidents or people passing by popping their necks at it if i would consider kindly removing it or <laughs> you know and i said yes sure no problem and i i remember i removed that sign uh, you know woefully i didn't want to do it but i yeah. i did it because i wanted to have good relationships with the of with course. the city yeah yeah um, speaking speaking of signs, Courtney. So this, so so tell us. Um, you had told us not too long ago. You have a great story about when when somebody um, told you that it might have been available, and uh, and you did some research, right? C can you just can you just talk about that story? About what the sign? Yeah, the sign and how, how somebody said that that it was available at some warehouse right um in the south bay somewhere? oh the sign the sign was um was sitting on the building right for many years i think um my wife took over the operations of the la store because i had closed down the long beach store uh, a couple of years before that and she ha held it going till about 1999 i think the early part of 1999 and um, she had to close it because you know so the sign was sitting there until probably about five years ago on the building. And one time I had a contact, somebody contacted me and asked me if I was willing to uh, sell them the sign to use as a prop in a TV show. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. And um, so anyway, I never heard from them again. They were just sitting there. And then one day my son drive by there and says, dad, the sign is gone. I said, well, I told you, you should have took down the sign. So anyway, he was searching for it. And lo and behold, the, show, the, the sign pops up on an auction. <laughs> and they were selling it for $2,500. <laughs> well, that's and, really reasonable. <laughs> yes. I, well, that's about what I paid for the sign when I bought it. So my son went it was being offered at some thrift shop in uh, Culver City, which is not too far from Washington Boulevard. Right. 
And my son went over there and said, well, you know, this is my dad's sign. And the lady says, well, I'm sorry, sir. I bought it from someone and we're offering it as well. When he went back, the sign was gone. Apparently. Hot item. Yeah. It was I, a hot item. Maybe she removed it. Out of I don't know. <laughs> so some, somewhere, somehow. Maybe it'll turn back up. In the movie this time, right? Yeah, maybe it'll turn yes. somewhere. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that sign um, is actually made, I think, by the same company that made the makes McDonald's sign because it's molded. It is not. It is an really an expensive sign at the time. I paid two thousand five hundred U.S. dollars for it. Wow. It's actually molded. It is not. Um, like these signs where they they uh, sticker the, the sign on. So this someone sign, actually knew the value of it. Yes, the sign is molded. That means it is it it is imprinted in the in the material, not just uh, stickered on. Right, right. Uh, Courtney, um, just a couple. Please of return my sign. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Please, we'd love to see it. Uh, I turn back up. Uh, just a couple more questions. So, Courtney, one of the things that Junior and I talk about often um, is there's there's more of a divide between and, and, and separation between the ska scene and the reggae scene than there is crossover by and large, at least here here in Los Angeles. Um, there's not, and again, I'm generalizing, but there's not there's not many Jamaicans, say for instance or even hardcore reggae fans that would attend some of the, the ska shows or vice versa. Um, a, do you, do you, would you agree with that from your, from your time here? And then B, why do you think, why do you think that is? Well, yes, I would totally agree with that. Um, the, the ska scene and the reggae scene have very little in common. Um, you have to think about it in the sense of, um, uh two different eras and it's not a situ it's not a situation where one evolves into the other there were two separate scenes and it it started probably in england somewhere and it um the discussing is more of a of a, um, is to me, it's more of a, a working class, um, uh, you know, just, just take a look, for instance, at the way they dress. And that's what, that was one of the appealing things to me was that, you know, they dress, you know, very clean look, you know, the, the suit. Sure. Great little, little rude boy looks, yeah. Yes, whereas in reggae, the you know with the red, gold, and green, the rasta, the you know that kind of thing, it's more of a more like like a hippie, um, you know, free uh, kind of thing. But the the ska scene is a little bit more structured. You have to appear a certain way. You have to. You have a certain look about you, right? Uh, um, yeah, you know, clean, clean cut. 
you know, you notice that the ska people, they're more clean cut, they're more, um, um, you know, straight look kind of people, you know, you know, they, they dress in their Fed Perry shirts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. jackets and things like that. You know, they look like somebody coming up straight out of an office. <laughs> so, uh, so even, even with the, the girls, you know, the, the rude girls. You know, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. um, Whereas yeah. in Jamaica, when you had the scene in Jamaica was the same thing, you know. Well, that was the style then, though. The, the, all uh, throughout Ireland, that was the style. Yeah, when you look at the ska scene in Jamaica, it mm -hmm. was the look at Bob Marley in his early but, pictures. No, it is, yeah. And tie. And the so, dances, yet the dances, the, yes, the, the, the early the, videos, the dancing. That was the style dance. They, they, they look. They, they definitely didn't dress like rebels. Put it that way. Right. Right. Um, they, they look like working class people. You know, with, with the suit and the tie and, you know, Jimmy Cliff and all of them. But when the when the reggae came along now, people were probably rebelling against these formalities and, and even the looks. So they took on a different uh, appearance, you know, with the dreadlocks, you know, people weren't, they weren't clean shaved or anything like that. So that these are some of the things that separate the scene. So you have people who are diehard um, ska people, but they would go to reggae shows, you know, and even have some uh, people who uh, were diehard reggae fans, but they would go to ska shows. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. But those those are those are um, small numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, um, sticking on one point, um, the, the, the fashion and, and culture. Uh, so when you did the shows at Fenders, specifically some of the ska shows, you know, in theory, you would have skinheads, rude boys, rude girls, mods. Um, were there, were there fights? Were there a lot of fights at that time? Oh yeah. <laughs> there was so many, there was quite a few fights. I tell you that much. I Not gun fights though. People didn't fight with gun like in reggae culture. No, no, no. They 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 fight fist to fist, man. Right, fist to fist. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they'll take up a chair or something, but um, mm -hmm. no, there was no um, knives and stuff like that. You see, in the ska scene, and particularly uh, the Long Beach shows that I did, they had this thing called. Um, mosh is it called a mosh pit mosh pit sure yeah yeah, yeah. and that was one of the strange things that um, mm -hmm. alarmed me was when i went to these shows that people were bumping against each other and going around in circles and dancing around in circles and hitting up against each other and people were even doing wild things like jumping off the stage into the crowd yeah diving <laughs> yes and i'm like what the hell <laughs> dangerous uh, right you, you can imagine you have a reggae show or something and somebody going up on the stage and jumping off. Everybody, it would fall flat on the concrete. Yeah. But yeah. at the shows, people would catch the people and hold them up, carrying them around the, the place, you know. And anyway, so that, that was um, strange and unique. But then you had the fights because apparently... Um, 
there were two types of skinheads that I I didn't when when they first told me about skinheads, I was thinking about um, Nazis. Sure. Skins. That's what I learned about through the media. Mm-hmm. But then some of the guys they tell me, no man, uh, these are two tone skins like sharp, you know, uh, skinheads against racial prejudice and two-tone skins and all this kind of stuff. And then I do my own research and learn why they were called skins. And anyway, so yeah, they would have these these fights, man, at the um, at the concerts. And then the next morning you get phone calls uh, from the parents that my son was at a show that you promoted. And of course, I'll go into um, a denial mode, you know, <laughs> for legitimate reasons. Of course, um, we are not the promoters of the show. We just um, sell the tickets at their at their store. And um, and I'm sorry about your son, uh, or you know, getting into a fight and stuff like that. And so, but those things usually work out, and the parents uh, will be back at the show next week. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, I, I mean, the the walk down memory lane and hearing about Courtney, your upbringing in Jamaica and, and your time in the in the Marines and obviously um, the the early uh, LA reggae community and your your, your both culture beat locations um, and obviously you know everything everything you you went through. Um, final question. What what advice? So so what did you learn from um, everything that you went through, even the darkest hours, so to speak, right? And 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 your time serving, um, maybe both in the U.S. Marines, but also serving, um, you know, in the federal uh, pen. Um, what did you learn, and, and what advice would you give? Uh, you know, if, if we wanted to make this a teachable moment, so to speak. Well, um, I, I learned a lot, you know, but to sum it up uh, in, a, in a nutshell is that life, you know, it's a, it's a big journey and there's, there's not going to be very, I mean, there's not going to be always happy moments, but if you can make the best of your life, you know, the best, the, the best time um, in life is what you're enjoying. So you're not thinking about something bad is going to happen to you or whatever. I don't think many people, if any, think about that. So you're you're enjoying. I I'm enjoying um, meeting the the the, the scar people. I'm enjoying, um, you know, the reggae scene. I'm enjoying all of that, you know. And I'm never once thinking about um, anything, you know, bad or whatever is going to happen to me. And I, I really, I really don't look at it as being as something bad happening. I'm just looking at it as part of my life experience. And I, I'm not dwell, dwelling on um, it being something negative or whatever. 
I'm just summoning it up as part of my life experience. And that's what I'm experiencing is it's real to me. But what I would advise people or anyone is just live your life and try to be happy and try to make other people happy. You know, because when, when I was buying records and selling records, I, I was trying to make my customers happy by providing them with the records that they want. And, I was, and most of all, I was trying to make them happy by providing them with records that I love. That, that is what was my main success, was that I, I was offering something to the public that sure. I love. Mm-hmm. I truly love ska, rocksteady, and reggae music, you know? You can't, you cannot, not love, love it to be, to be doing it because you're not making a whole lot of money from it. Right. <laughs> True. I'm not, I'm not getting, I have never gotten rich from, uh, from selling records. You know, I, maybe if you speak to some of the reggae artists, they probably would tell you the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't know about the ones now, but back in those days, people weren't making a lot of money from, from reggae music. So you had, I had to love it to be yeah. doing it. I yeah. still do, I still love, uh, you know, listening to, uh, to uh, you know, you have YouTube now and you have Spotify and all that. Sure, Just, yeah. yeah. I guess uh, came here and introduced me to that. And now I'm listening to that. <laughs> And of course, uh, every once in a while, I try to listen to Junior Francis. <laughs> yes, as we, as we all do. Yes. Well, yeah, well, that, that's that's great advice. And, and, and um, yes, you're going to expand. You told me you're going to expand um, your place of business, Kings, Kingsworth, right? Kingsworth, bed and breakfast. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. So you want to have an entertainment section? Yeah, there I there I go again. I tell you, this this <laughs> just um, the break. The music is not following you, right? Music can't leave me alone. Uh-huh. So tell us a little bit about that, and if people come to Jamaica, how can they locate you? Yeah, well, what's the best way for them to find you, Courtney? Well, you can find me online, like where you can find everything else at mm-hmm. Kingsworth Bed and Breakfast. Uh, mm-hmm. If you Google that, you'll definitely come up with uh, the place. Okay, and. Um, yeah. You're doing fabulously well, as a matter of fact. Taking people tours of Kingston. You're doing very well. Mm-hmm. Yes, very, and I, do tours. Well. I do tours of um, Kingston, music tour, of course. I have mm-hmm. a comprehensive uh, music tour. I think, Junior, uh, you took yes. you took a tour. Uh, yes, uh, we went to uh, Joe Gibbs. Um, we went to Joe Gibbs, Randy's. Um, we went to King Tubby's. Wow. Yeah, you ran into Stranger Cole, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Clarendonians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We went. We went to other yeah. places. I tell you. Lee Perry. Did I mention we went to Lee Perry Studio? Yeah, Lee Perry. Yes. And then uh, Bob, uh, the home where Bob Marley grew up, is definitely worth it. We, I, I'm doing commercial for yeah. the business. Well, we, we, we definitely, this, um, we, we definitely <laughs> encourage, we encourage our listeners yes. and viewers and fans out there to yes, you you out and your knowledge online. of Kingston is extensive. Yeah. Well, yeah, National Geographic didn't call me an expert on Jamaican culture and geography for no reason. Wow, all right. And you didn't pay for it. They, yeah. they voluntarily, yeah, yeah. listed you. So, no. 
I can take you anywhere you want to go mm. in King. Yeah. And it's safe. All right. Nice. Well, on that on that note, Courtney, hey, we 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 thank you so much. I I love that we reconnected. Uh, and thank you again for the, the tour in 2004 um, and for all that you do. Congratulations mm -hmm. on, on the success and, and um, Junior, this has been, this is wonderful as always. Yes, so we hope some of your uh, former rude boy friends who have now, you know, matured and become family. Uh, They're rude men. Rude men. <laughs> <laughs> and, and rude mothers. <laughs> We'll come and visit right. you in Jamaica. A lot of people, you know, have a tendency to avoid Kingston, which is in fact the epicenter of this great music. So if you go to yeah, Jamaica, the epicenter of the right. area only, I think it's a very unfortunate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's I must assure them that totally safe in Kingston. Don't follow the news. Mm -hmm. the news uh, yeah, it is totally safe in Kingston. You, mm -hmm. you can, I mean, Leave your door open. Nobody will bother you. All right. Well, nice. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Courtney. Well, I think we reached our destination, Courtney. I want to thank you, sir. Thank and you. And that's like Jimmy Cliff um, from the Harder They Come soundtrack. Nice poster behind you. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. And that's, <laughs> you're, at the, you're, at, you're at your residence now, right? Yes, I'm at uh, King. Yeah. Uh -huh. okay. Way up in the hill. I, I have my, my records on the wall there. Oh, yeah. your gold records. Hey. Yeah. Nice. Yes. <laughs> and I have the uh, Harder They Come poster yeah. back Right. There. Uh huh. And what's the third thing? Says something about Blue World. Blue Lagoon. I rescued a sign there called the Blue Lagoon. From, from California or Jamaica? No, Jamaica, man. Uh -huh. All right. <laughs> nice. hey, wonderful. All right. Well, I think that about does yes. it. So any any parting words? I think you did say thank you to your wonderful fans. Yeah, man. I want to thank everybody. All the, all the rude boys and all the skinheads and um, you know everybody who supported Culture Beat over the years and made it a hallmark, mm -hmm. hallmark, if you may. Uh, you know. I hope I had wished to have had the store still open. As a matter of fact, I talk to my son sometimes and I said, you see, it, I was ahead of my time. Yeah. Uh, he, he says, dad, everywhere in Los Angeles now you have uh, marijuana shops. He says, dad, you were ahead of your time. <laughs> I said, that, that's what happens when you're ahead of your ahead time. Of time. People, people can't relate right. to you. That's right. All right yeah. it, just imagine, you know, it, it could have been uh, come into the shop, listen to some Bob Marley, and uh, have your choice. There you I, go. I know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you guys thank you. very much for having me. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you hey, hey. And uh, uh, to our viewers and listeners, I want to thank them, and please follow us at History of LASKIA one-on-one on Instagram. Uh, we're also encouraging people to subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our Facebook group. We're urging people and you can tell your friends too, you know, and you should invite your friends also to watch this. It'll be coming up on yes. our about yeah, later this week. It'll yeah, later out. this week you can see yourself, Courtney. Yes, I usually, I usually uh, watch your uh, interviews if you know oh, it. Yes, man. All right. Yes. Attack. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow this channel. Uh -huh. I probably won't watch this one though. <laughs> <laughs> I let, let the rude girls and the rude boys. Uh, <laughs>
All right, Courtney. I follow uh, this gentleman at Junior Francis on yes. uh, Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, and men, can you mention also that you have a list that you put up weekly? Uh, yes. Yeah, so then, uh, if you follow mm -hmm. uh, at Rockery underscore Radio, mm -hmm. um, Sean Heitkamper and I put on uh, daily um, uh, curated playlists along the lines of uh, Jamaican and soul and rock and rhythm. Um, so that's a lot of fun. So mm -hmm. we also uh, want to thank everyone for the ongoing support all of our viewers and listeners and um, Junior, thank you. Courtney, thank you. All the best, everyone. And until next thank time, you. take care and much love. See you at Kingsward. Yes.